Hello and welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I'm joined by Matt Massacott. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to have you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited too. So before we begin, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself and what you've been working on. Sure. Well, my name is Matt. I've been a very long time macOS developer. I started before it was called macOS. I transitioned to Swift like everybody, like I think a lot of people did. And so I've been doing a lot of Swift development since then. And uh, right now, my main focus is a text editor for the Mac called Chime, which I work on with a partner. Awesome. So kind of explain Chime, uh, what it differentiates it from other like typical text editors that are out there. I think the big thing that differentiates Chime is we have this really strong emphasis on focus and minimalism and design. And so if you look at Chime in comparison to something like Visual Studio Code, it looks like totally different. There's almost nothing there. It's a very minimal user interface. But Chime also has a lot of the core functionality that you'd expect from a more modern IDE. It uses language server protocol, which is this thing that Microsoft built as part of Visual Studio Code for interfacing with languages. It uses TreeSitter, which is this incremental parsing system for delivering syntax highlighting and some other features. So it has a lot of capabilities, but we really try to keep it in this very simple and minimal form, which is very hard to find. Now, is the product open source or on the App Store? How how does that work exactly? We sell the product direct, not on the App Store. Okay. And the core app is not open source, but over time, we've open sourced huge parts of it are open source. Okay. So, yeah, kind Mm. of explain that. How are you open sourcing part of the app, but then selling it at the same time? And Are you worried somebody's going to copy your code or how does that work exactly? I know that I just mentioned language server protocol. And so we have, that was our first open source project was our LSP, like API for Swift. And I know that it has been used in at least one other commercial product. But the thing is that it's licensed under the BSD three clause license, which is very similar to the MIT. Very, very permissive. You can do kind of whatever you want. And we don't really have a problem with that. I like it when people collaborate. I mean, the whole reason for open sourcing in the first place was we were thinking that Chime is based on these critical open source features and it just make, uh, projects. And it just makes sense for us to contribute back in some way instead of just using them. So that's why we started doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's also been, it's been wonderful for a whole bunch of other reasons, but that was the main reason why we started. And so I don't have a problem with people using, <laughs> using that kind of thing. I, I prefer when they collaborate and I really like, I love seeing PRs come in, but I, I have no problem with people that do that. So it's refactored in such a way that part of the app is broken into libraries and those individual libraries are open sourced. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly it. So like... You kind of explained one of the benefits was that you can get people coming in and contributing to basically mm-hmm. parts of the app code. Let's take a step back. You said you use BSD3, correct? How is that different from MIT? And what was the thought process in choosing that specific license? There probably are some more nuanced legal differences between the, the, the traditional BSD2 clause and MIT. I think, But I think of them as equivalent. And the only difference with BSD3 clause is it adds this extra little bit, which says that you can't use this project and have that be like an official endorsement. And so what that does is is kind of protect your brand a little bit more so that if somebody else wants to use your project, they can't use that as an implicit endorsement of the project that's using the package. What does that mean, endorsement? I'm kind of curious. 
So like our name and our company name and our, and my personal name appears everywhere all over the, the work. But this license prevents you from using that. Like, look at Matt's contributed to our project because I, but only through this. Uh, okay. Okay. Interesting. It's a very minor thing. I'm actually not sure whether it's that important, but the reason why I chose it was it was a long time ago was I had worked on a, um, a crash report, an open source crash reporting library. And those are very commonly used by companies to build these larger projects. And I just wanted to make sure that if that ended up happening, that it didn't look like it was me that was doing it because I previously have worked on commercial crash reporting systems. And I didn't want to mix those two streams. So that's kind of where it came from. Okay, that makes total sense. Are you familiar with the other open source libraries? Like the ones I, the one that usually I pick is MIT because I want that pervasiveness of the library out there. Are there any benefits to using any other libraries out there? And what was your thought process on using the MIT or BSD type as opposed to the other ones? Well, so the, the reason why I picked BSD3 clause was again to just make it so that it's almost as permissive as MIT, with the exception that if you want to talk about who's contributed, you can't use that as a form of endorsement. But other than that, I think really they're equivalent to MIT. Somebody that I happen to work with really closely, his name is Marcin Kranerwinski. Yeah, we've had Marcin on. Yep. Yeah, you might have heard of Swift Studio. He does a bunch of other things. He has this really interesting take on open source. He does a ton of open source work, but he largely dual licenses his work for commercial versus open. And in fact, he sells licenses. Some of his projects are available. You can buy a commercial license. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he's got a really interesting take on it. He wrote a big blog post about it too. Okay, okay. I'll look for that. Yeah, we've had Marcian on and he's fantastic. Yeah, he's a really cool guy. Besides the licensing, what are other steps that you can take to avoid your code getting copied, I guess? I mean, if, if you license it with MIT, I don't think there's really all that much you can do. You're giving it away. Right, right, right. So let's take a step back and ask the question, if you're like a larger company, what are some of the benefits? Obviously, outside contribution is one of them to open sourcing parts of your libraries. What are some other ones that you can think of? Well... I guess it depends what you're doing, but if your company is making like a library or a framework that gets integrated, most other companies and even individuals will be very hesitant to incorporate something from a commercial entity unless it's open source. It will happen for sure. I worked on the Crashlytics project and it was closed source for a very long time and they got integrated all over the place. But eventually it was open sourced because people just want to be able to understand what's actually going on under the hood, which is totally reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's much less about being able to contribute. I think people like the idea of being able to contribute, but they want to just be able to look and see what's up if they get interested. Hi, everyone. I'm Dave Verwer, and you might know that I run the Swift Package Index along with Sven Schmidt. Thanks so much to Leo for inviting us to talk a little bit about the Package Index today. SwiftPackageIndex.com is the place to find Swift packages. We have over 5,000 packages indexed, so no matter what you're looking for, you'll find something that can help. But what we do is about more than just finding a library. We want to help you make better decisions about your dependencies. So for every package, you can see how well-maintained it is, what platforms and Swift versions it's compatible with, based on real-world build data, how many other dependencies it will bring in, and much more. We also host Doxy-based documentation for package authors. But I'd also like to talk to you about what it takes to keep a site like this going. Running the package index requires constant ongoing effort maintaining the site and supporting package authors. 
Our work is primarily funded by the Swift community. And since you're listening to a Swift podcast, you're part of that community. So if our site has helped you find a package, or if you want to support a community-run open source project, please go to swiftpackageindex.com, look for the pink heart, and join over a 100 other people who support our work through GitHub sponsors. Thanks so much, Leo, and we'll let you get back on with the show now. Have you seen other software out there that's in the Apple, like on the Apple platform that is open source? How have they done it? And what's kind of their methods? And there's lots. There's all kinds of open source out there. There's a, um, in, like in my domain, there's an app called Caught Editor, which is an o- totally open source Mac OS editing tool. And I think that's an interesting thing because you don't see fully full apps open sourced all that often. I think there's some complexity there. I know it's on the App Store. So I'm not sure who owns like the signing keys and I'm not sure exactly how that process works. But I think that adds a level of complexity that like something like a Swift package would totally not have. Yeah, and that's kind of the way I've I've gone about it too, is taking some of my I'm kind of in the in the space of where I want to take some of the code of different apps that I do and like package it into Swift packages that can be open sourced. You should. It's wonderful. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm planning on it. I'm planning on it. But like one thing is I think people, especially developers, overvalue the code and not like the marketing and building the audience and like actually like selling the app as opposed to building the code. The code is important. Don't get me wrong, but like getting, building that audience and selling the app is like a good, at least 50% of the work of getting an app out there besides the actual code. I I don't know if you agree, but like, that's what I've seen. I think 50% is generous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I guess it depends a little bit what, what it is, but yeah, being able to like the product, the marketing, how it's presented, getting it to people is a humongous part of building something real. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen the rule 80, 20, like that's usually what I see out there. Like the, we overvalue the code as developers, but like, yeah, it's packaging the product, so to speak, that makes the product successful. Yeah. Just to touch on what you're talking about. I think that usually I favor building small parts over open sourcing, for example, the whole, the whole app. Because the, the nice thing about having the whole app open source is that some really gung-ho user might go in there and add a feature that they want for themselves. But I think that's much less likely. I think it's much more likely that if you have a small package that really focuses on one specific problem, other people will use that for total things you totally never would have thought of. And then that's more likely to like integrate better with the community and just be more useful in general. Yeah. Yep. 100% agree. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about when it comes to open sourcing before we jump into one of the big uh, libraries that you're using or APIs that you're using right now? We, yeah. I mean, I would love to talk about depend, just the concept of dependencies real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it goes hand in hand, right? Is that you have these people in general, they love open source and then they hate dependencies. <laughs> <laughs> That's not universally true, of course, but it does come up a lot. I think people in general think very hard about incorporating a dependency into their app. And in particular, if that dependency itself has transitive dependencies, I think that can be a big red flag for a lot of people. Yeah. So you think, like, what's your, I guess, philosophy when it comes to using open source dependencies? Oh, I am extremely liberal. I mean, I'll take dependencies all over the place. I don't worry about it that much at all because I'm really, my goal, I want to build cool stuff as fast as possible. And if I can find some library that can get me even 
50% of the way there, I'm totally into that. And if I discover later, oh, it doesn't do what I want, or I would like to do something different, that's no big deal. It's just like normal software development. I'll change. But I'm very quick to take dependencies if it help, if I feel like it can help me get somewhere. Okay, I'm going to be devil's advocate, even though I agree with you. But what if those dependencies aren't well-maintained or, especially with Apple, they change APIs all the time where old stuff ends up breaking. What do you do about that? You know, I'm in that situation right now because I use a system called TreeSitter and it itself has, there's many, 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 you need somebody to build a parser and some of these parsers are necessary and not maintained anymore or lacking features. And I think that that's part of the, trade-off you get with having somebody else do some work for you is that sometimes you now have to do a little bit of work yourself. But usually I find that to be way easier than implementing everything from scratch. So abandoned specifically, I think is really like, it's kind of like an invitation to go and get it unabandoned. Well, and I mean, like with open source, I think too often though, we don't realize that there is the case of a closed source thing. God forbid, Google abandons something, which of course they never do. You're kind of you're kind of in trouble there. Whereas you use an open source project, like you can always fork it and like maintain it yourself. And that's like that's no worse than building something yourself and not using a dependency, I guess. You can decide that you can start off with something and decide later, okay, it's not getting my pull requests aren't getting accepted. It's kind of stuck and I don't feel like working this anymore. I'm going to do my own thing anyway. That's a totally reasonable path to take. And that's a very, very reasonable thing to do. I think you're right. It has to be case by case, but I'm not usually particularly worried about dealing with things that are abandoned. It happens. I have current dependencies to Chime that are abandoned and I fork them and I maintain them because that's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get into extension kit. I want to talk about. I had never heard this API before. How new is it? It's not that new, is it? It was introduced with Ventura. So it was introduced just iOS 16 and Mac OS 13. And I think that part is interesting too. So it's most of it is available to both iOS and Mac OS. Yes. Well, I believe it's a, it's looked to me like it's available on all the OSs. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, it is. It is. It's on all Apple platforms. Let's not forget the watch and the TV. I know that was very uncool of me. <laughs> Yeah, so what is Extension Kit exactly? Well, what it is, I think, is a generalization of all the previous extension technologies that have existed. So there were extensions for Siri, there were extensions for all kinds of Finder extensions, there's widgets on all of the mobile platforms, and I think Extension Kit is really a generalization underneath all those pieces. And this is some a new API Apple has made available. So how are you using it in Chime? Well, what happened, I mean, it was so, it was kind of unbelievable, actually, is that we had been um, adding a new language to Chime, which was a big deal for us. And part of that process, we realized that it was just untenable to do it the way we needed. We needed some kind of extension plugin system, which is kind of what a lot of IDEs go towards. And so I started working on this a little bit. And that was maybe two weeks before WWDC and this past WWDC. And during that time, a friend of mine just mentioned, he knew that I was working on this stuff. And he mentioned, did you see this extension kit stuff? And I did not because there was no sessions on it. There was no mention of it anywhere. It was very under the radar. My theory, by the way, about about why that happened is I think this was supposed to launch for iOS as well, both producing and hosting extensions. It makes no sense to launch an API to just make extensions if you can't also use them. Right, right, right. And I think this was pulled at the last minute. And that's why there was no session. This is a guess, but I bet you that's what happened. It's 
only available in like 16.1, I guess. Is that? I don't think so. It is not yet available on iOS or any other platforms except the Mac. But on 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 Ventura, you can use it today. Okay. So, how does it work? How do you set it up? Like, how do you allow some third party app to plug into your app on Mac OS? The way that it works is there's a new Xcode target, which is just a generic extension, and it works kind of similarly to other extension targets. You bundle that in the containing app. And then in your app, which is going to host the extension, there's a couple different pieces. And these are the ones that are only available to Mac OS. But there's a little browser view that shows you a list of all of the apps that have extensions that meet your criteria. And you can turn them on and off. So this is the thing the user sees. It's totally opaque to the developer. It's totally, you have no programmatic control. You just put up a thing and it shows all these extensions that are available. And then you have another API that you can use to discover extensions and activate them. Okay. Do you have some way to know what extensions are activated and installed for your app? Yeah. So there's this whole um, API around the um, identity of extensions. And you can get like uh, notifications when new ones come available. It can all happen dynamically at runtime. So you can get notifications when new ones come around. What you do with that is totally up to your app. So there could be a million extensions and you could, you could pick and choose which one you want to actually run. Okay, so the user kind of gatekeeps first to what extensions, but then you can even filter it further if you want to disable certain extensions the user enabled. There's even a preference pane in Ventura settings to allow you to, the user on like an even higher level, to approve or deny particular extensions. So we had talked about before the show about the previous episode with Sarah and how we did not get into XPC, but I think maybe this is an opportunity to get into it. I've dabbled with XPC. Well, first of all, what is it and how does it relate to Extension Kit? Yeah, so um, XPC is a communication mechanism, really, that uses the lowest level IPC primitives on Apple's platforms to shuffle data back and forth and make it kind of look like remote function calls. That's basically Mm -hmm. what XPC is. Okay. And so Extension Kit is based around entirely around XPC. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you can have one connection, which is kind of like global to the extension process. So one extension has one global connection. But extension kit also supports view. So you can have these remote views that like kind of behave a little bit like video, interactive video, in the sense that they look 100% native. They can be Swift UI or even app kit. You can show, looks like it's in your app. But actually all of the clicks and mouse events and keyboard events are getting shuffled through back to the other process. Wow. Okay. Pretty unbelievable, actually. Yeah, yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. And those views themselves also have a connection. So you have a global connection to the process, and then you have these per-view connections you can use to like manage individual state. Okay. Okay. So basically, you're using XPC to kind of communicate between the two, two apps, I guess, or the extension in the app, right? That's it, pretty much, yeah. How is all this stuff packaged... And how how does that relate to sandboxing? Yes. Okay. So one of the weird quirk with extension kit, which is not, this is the same as all extensions. If you want to make a Safari extension today, you have to also put it inside of a container application. And so extension kit works the same. It has to be bundled into a containing app. And I'm pretty sure that app has to be launched once on the user's machine before the extension becomes available. Oh, okay. I'm actually not 100% sure about that, but I think so. No, I I would not be surprised. Yeah. Would not be surprised at all. Yeah. So uh, extensions must be sandboxed. This is probably true of of other kinds of extensions too, but extension kit, generic extensions have to be sandboxed. And 
that turned out to be, I think that it really depends on your domain. That could be no big deal, depending on what your extension is trying to do. But in my particular case, it was a huge problem. And I had to do all kinds of work to figure out how I was going to make the extensions be able to do the kinds of things I wanted to do. What were some of those things? Well, so one of the things that Chime uses extensions for is to add new language support. So if you wanted to add, for example, PHP, you can make a PHP extension. And that extension is going to have to use like the PHP language server and the whole language server protocol implementation neither understands nor is tolerant of sandboxing. It's just totally incompatible with sandboxing. So your extension, you want it to fire up a server and that server is going to be sandboxed because it got started by a sandboxed process. And so it just doesn't work. So we have this like framework that kind of wraps up the extension process called Chime Kit. And it takes care of a whole bunch of sandboxing complexities. But one of the things it also does is bundle in an XPC service, which is just another process that uses XPC for communication that helps to get around some of the sandboxing limitations. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to kind of do a little bit of handholding for folks who want to build a plugin. Yeah. It might not be necessary, but in my particular case, it was very necessary. Yeah. 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 Before you had heard about extension kick, how were you thinking about doing it? How do other providers do so you mentioned visual studio code how do they do it do they just avoid sandboxing and yeah entirely it's all based on javascript okay so you write a little i'm not sure exactly how it's packaged but they have their own custom format that has a little bit of metadata and like some entry points and then it just fires up a javascript vm and possibly even runs within the main apps vm but you get to run javascript and there's almost no limitation there you can do that kind of whatever you want Hey folks, I wanna let you know about an app I've been working on, Bushel. If you're a Mac OS developer, this is the perfect app for you. Bushel is the Mac OS virtual machine app for developers who want rigorous and uncompromising testing in their app. Bushel is focused on giving you a complete native capabilities of the Mac OS operating system for all your testing requirements. Right now, I'm looking for folks who are interested in beta testing the app as it's currently in beta. Bushel is gonna be a great app if you want to test out different localizations, different operating system, going back all the way to Big Sur, I want to make sure your app still works. Let's say you have a bash script, for instance, and you want to test it out and you don't care if it breaks the Mac and you want to make sure you can revert back. You can do all that with this app. It does snapshots, different version testing, and all sorts of things that are perfect if you want to make sure that your app is working. I was always jealous of iOS developers having a simulator, so I made my own app to do the same thing with Bushel. So sign up now, go to getbushel.app, sign up with your email address and get a test flight invite today. Again, go to getbushel.app to sign up and get your test flight invite. Thank you so much for taking time to listen and I hope you enjoy the rest of the program. Okay, that makes total sense. Have you run into any other issues with sandboxing that have really, like, you obviously, you don't, you aren't on the Mac App Store, right? You're not on the Mac App Store. So do you did you just kind of give up on sandboxing or how if you're not on the Mac App Store, you don't need to do sandboxing, but then you're talking about using extension kit and worrying about sandboxing. How does that work exactly? Well, okay, so great question. So um when I first heard that extensions had to be sandboxed, I thought, okay, well, what I'm gonna do to start, because that's an area that I know nothing about, I'm just gonna turn sandboxing on for my app and see what goes wrong. And so that's kind of what I did to first get started. Before I pulled anything out into real extensions, I wanted to know what the limitations were. 
And that helped a lot. It made it because extensions are actually right now, extension kit extensions are really annoying to work with because you don't have, or I can't figure out how to connect a debugger. So it's all like print debugging via console because you can't see it when they're running with it. Yeah, it's a real pain. So that helped. But I discovered all kinds of all kinds of things that ended up being problematic related to sandboxing. One of them was actually, it turns out, talked about from uh, the app Kaleidoscope. Yeah, I saw, I posted that blog post and we'll post a link to it. You did, you did. Kaleidoscope. I- incidentally, the author of that blog is the one who pointed me at Extension Kit in the first place. <laughs> Just by funny coincidence. He's the one who noticed it. But so they had this problem where they wanted to build a little command line tool to launch Kaleidoscope from the command line. And as it turns out, I was doing a similar thing with Chime as well. So we were kind of talking together to figure out how are we going to do this. And there's this feature, this special entitlement that you can get that enables this particular capability. And that is the entitlement that was problematic for Kaleidoscope getting approved in the App Store. Mm, okay. So we both simultaneously, we, you have to request this entitlement. There's like a special page. You go to request it. Then you tell them why you want it. Do you, are you familiar with this whole uh, privileged file operations, it's called? Uh, I'm not familiar with that particular entitlement, but there was another entitlement I had to ask for Apple's blessing on. So I kind of know what you're talking about. Yeah, so, so we both went through this whole thing together. Now, I'm lucky because I'm not on the app store. So I can just do whatever I want. But wait a minute. So I thought, because it turns out that privileged file operations don't work unless your app is sandboxed. Mm, okay. So I went through, we, we both went through this process together. We both were doing it for the exact same reason. And then in the end, it was working for Kaleidoscope and was not working for me. And it turns out it's because it, you're, and if you turn sandboxing on, it works again. So that was a really interesting case where this is one of these funny situations where sandboxing actually helped. It would have made something work that doesn't. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a bizarre limitation. I'm not sure why. <laughs> so... As far as sandboxing is concerned, you're just like, I'm not going to bother with it? Or where, where did you end up falling on it? You know, it's, I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's good. And if we right. can do it and pull it off, and now that we have all, these, all this infrastructure in place to let our extensions do work out of the sandbox, which is itself kind of sounds strange that that's even possible, but it turns out that it is. <laughs> we thought about it, but in the end, it was just too much change all at once. So I'm not taking it off the table. Maybe we'll do, well, we will turn the sandbox on one day for Chime, but right now it's still going to stay off. So sandboxing is staying off, but you're still going to allow sandbox extensions to be used in your app. They must. They must be sandboxed. So if you want to do extensions through Extension Kit, they have to be sandboxed. So we needed to have some sort of system to make that possible. That makes total sense. I mean, what did you think of that blog post where you kind of like, yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like for you, sandboxing is still on the table, but for Kaleidoscope, it just sounded like it's a big headache to have to maintain two versions of the app. It's the combination of sandbox and also the app store. I don't think sandboxing was really the issue. I think the issue was app approval. They gave them a permission, like one half of Apple gave them this permission. Then the other half of Apple said, what is this permission? You shouldn't be using this. Um, So I I think that the more the problem was that there was just the left hand not knowing what the right hand was doing. I was about to say the same exact thing. Yes. Yeah. I feel like that's an issue with the App Store approval process overall. Yeah. The the App Store has tremendous problems. So does sandboxing, though. There are all kinds of really reasonable things that apps want to do. And it's very unclear how to do it. It's very unclear what the right way to do it is. And then as Kaleidoscope experience, even if you follow all the rules, you might get rejected for following the rules the way that Apple told you to, which is totally bananas. 
Right, right. Yeah, yeah. We've heard this before. I mean, I like iOS has that issue, but at least it doesn't have like sandboxing issues per se, but it has other, other issues as well. You know what it reminds me of is when I was first applying for the, we use developer ID to sign, to sign our app. Right, right. Because you still have to do, uh, what's it called? Code signing and notarization. Notarization. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was yeah. looking for. Yeah. Well, we have to, we, I guess we don't have to notarize, but we do have to code sign. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's, there's a whole approval process. You have to like to, like establish an official, it's just like how it works with iOS on the App Store. You need this official business relationship with Apple to get this stuff. And part of it, I had to talk to somebody on the phone at Apple. And so they said to me, okay, we see you got everything here, but you know, you are going to have to make some changes to your website and stuff because otherwise you won't pass app approval. And I said, oh, actually, we're using developer ID. And so there won't be an approval process. And the person paused for a second and they said, but you have to go through app approval to get anything on the, on the store. And I said, I know, but we're using develop. The whole purpose of this call is to get developer ID access, which is not a, a, like driven by approval. And they just had never even heard of that before. They didn't even have a concept that that was possible. Yeah, I think there's some training issues going on. I mean, I get it. Who's making apps that are not on the app store? It's probably pretty unusual. Right, right. That's true. So I guess like what's kind of your experiencing, what's been your experience building for Ventura and using this this beta mm-hmm. API, I guess? It has been frustrating. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the main reason that it's been frustrating is extension kit itself has had a whole bunch of issues in fact it doesn't work at all in the xcode 14.1 beta that just came out 16.1 or no yeah you mean ventura sorry it's like in the release notes it says extension kit doesn't work so it's been frustrating and you can tell it's obvious that this is an api that apple has been using internally for a long time because it works really well it's the problems that i've been running into are more that i have to work with a beta os i have to run ventura I have to use beta Xcode. And so I'm using this, the public API, the internal stuff I'm sure has been around for a long time, but the public API is new. And so it's gone through some interesting changes. It has some interesting limitations. I've been having a hard time getting it to work. In fact, it has a, um, extension kit has this um, documentation issue where it's impossible to use, but by luck, I like got one of the engineers in chat in the, um, what do they call it? WWDC has this, uh, lounges that the lounges yeah i happened to find somebody there and he was like oh yeah yeah we know we're missing this here's how you do it but if i hadn't gotten that i never would have made any progress at all on this it's funny because that's how i i had to ask for that privilege so i'm building bushel which is a, a basically a vm app for developers and you need to ask for an entitlement to do internal like what do they call it nat networking because I don't want to just, or bridge, excuse me, bridged IP address as opposed to a NAT. And like, I had to go through so many people, including on the Slack to figure out who, who or where to ask for that entitlement. Because there's like, it's kind of like you're saying the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. There's yeah. a lot of that at Apple, it feels like. What's amazing to me is especially in this area, which is one of the most painful areas for developers. Entitlements and sandboxing and App Store related just being compliant with their rules seems like something that they should really be trying hard to make easy for people on the Mac I'm talking about, especially. Why is the apps were not used very, or Mac apps were not used very much? I mean, I think that's a little bit of a problem right there is what you're describing. So you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to use the feedback assistant. And I'm sure that's, that's been working great, right? Well, it's been, <laughs> so 
I had this problem that um, took me forever to build a minimally reproducing example, but I was trying really hard to do it. It was re- related to extension mm-hmm. kit, but I had a lot of other stuff in my app that was necessary. And so I wasn't sure, is this an extension kit thing or is this a me thing? It's totally believable that it's just me. But I like for days, I'm trying to get this thing minimal and I got a minimal example and I submitted it to them. And their first answer was, yes, we do see this problem. And then I got another reply, which said, can you try the latest Ventura beta and see if it's better? I'll be honest, I got frustrated because it's like, you made me go through this trouble of building this example. Why can't you try it? Yeah, exactly. Why did I do that if you want me to check? And I, 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 I'm sure it's just like an automated system. There's somebody can press a button probably and say, turn this back to the developer and ask them to try the latest stuff. I mean, think about, so you're sitting in front of, let's say you're sitting in front of a queue of 3,000 bugs, right? You want to be able to have a really easy way to say, oh, okay, we changed some things in that area. Let's just put it back to the developer and see if it's better because it's probably often better. Yeah. So I understand why this happened, but I do find it deeply frustrating because in my case, it was hard to get this minimal example. I did it and then they just wanted me to check again. And of course, yes, it still does happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, I had one of those bugs recently where yeah. I was like, try the latest. And I'm building a watch app, so we all know how easy that is. Mm, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And, you know, I'm capturing sysdiagnose on my computer like 10 times a day. That kind of stuff can get a little bit annoying, too. Well, I had the issue where I was running feedback assistant, and I can't even pull up sysdiagnose on my watch because the communication is so bad. And it's like, oh, man, like your feedback assistant has a bug how do i file that like i don't so yeah i know anything else about feedback assistant you wanted to talk about no i mean not really i I just i i understand you know a lot of people will say i don't file feedback or i think it's a waste of time and i totally understand people are coming from feeling that way Mm -hmm. i was at apple for a while and i was on the inside and i really feel like it's so valuable to file that feedback even if you don't get the i mean get the feedback back saying to you that it's working and that it's useful and that people are seeing it, but people do see all this stuff. And so I think it's very important. And I think there's a lack of that though, that people understand that people are seeing it. There's no sign of that. And it doesn't feel like that's the case, right? No, it feels terrible. The experience that the the third party developers experience is absolutely terrible. Right. And I think too, it's like you pay whatever the hundred bucks, you give your 30% cut and like the least you expect is that things work. And when they don't, it's like, okay, at least have some communication back to you, but you don't even get that. So I totally get it. Yeah, I've been aggressive about filing feedback, assistant bugs, especially since I paid a lot for this Mac studio. So I expect my money to work. So yeah, I don't know. It is pretty disappointing though lately. Oh, it's it's terrible. It's such a bad experience. Yeah. It's such a bad experience. And it hurts Apple so much. I mean, the third-party developers find it very frustrating, but it's terrible for Apple too. Well, because their software is worse, right? Like they're, they have to pay for the bad APIs for years to come. They have to pay for the bugs. All those things are bad for Apple too, but they make it so difficult for these people who want to help them to help them. Seems crazy. Yeah. I, I don't know if the, there's Apple like selling its iPhones and that's the important thing. And Oh, I mean, okay. I'm not talking about Apple, the corporation. I think the corporation cares very little. You're right. The individuals working on Swift UI care a lot about seeing your Swift UI bugs. Yeah. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. No, I mean the corporation. I mean the thirty percent is it's it's just absurd. It's absurd. I mean I don't mind the thirty percent, but at least have the stuff work, or fifteen percent, whatever it is. I pay seven. You pay seven. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So where are you selling through? Through Paddle. Okay, 
I've heard like a lot of folks are on paddle. There's not too many. Unfortunately, there aren't too many options. I only know of paddle and Fastbring for being able to process payments. I mean, you could also build your own thing with Stripe. I guess you could you could actually build your own payment processing system. Yeah, I wouldn't do it, but you could. Yeah, actually, I, I do use Stripe for one of my apps because I have a web service and. You have to pay for for more of the web service, so that's how I get around it. And because I didn't want to do in-app purchase on a watch app because the UI isn't great. It's not even the the cut. I don't even care about the cut. So I ended up looking up Stripe, and it's been working fine. But I've seen a few people hack up stuff with uh, Gumroad, actually, which I find interesting. But it seems like, to you, Paddle had a really easy interface to plug into and everything. You know, it didn't have that easy an an interface. Really? Okay. It was good. It was good. It takes care of all. It takes care of a lot of stuff that you you do have to take care of with Stripe. Like it handles all tax calculations. It handles invoice generation. It handles all kinds of stuff really well. But because of the model that we use, so we use a model which um, was, funnily enough, it was pioneered by Sketch, but they don't use it anymore. But it's the one where you like. You buy a license that works forever and it gets you updates for a year. And then at the end of that year, you keep whatever you had. But if you want updates, you have to renew. Yeah, Sketch is totally subscription-based now, right? Now it's totally subscription-based. That's right. But as far as I know, they were the first app to do this. And a lot of people called it the Sketch model. So we use that too. And Paddle doesn't directly support that model. So it requires a little bit of work on your end to make that work. Okay. So for you, the big the big issue with the Mac App Store was more the sandboxing at this point than it is. Originally, yes. I think now that we've done, if I had it to start all over again, I mean, I don't want to deal with any of this payment crap. It was very complicated. Licensing was really challenging. But uh, now that it's all done, I would never go to the App Store because I feel like then I would have to deal with app review. I would have to pay more for app review and sandbox the app. And I feel like all I would really get out of that is maybe some marginally easier discovery through the App Store itself. I think it's a developer tool. People are going to be much more adventurous. I think that if you were making more of a consumer mainstream application, the App Store has much more appeal because it feels safer. Cool. Before we close out, I have two more questions. I'm going to ask the other one. Did you look at Extension Kit for the other OSs yet? I have looked at the APIs on iOS, but you can't host, you can build an extension for iOS, but you can't host one as of right now. You can build one. What do you explain that exactly? So you can make the extension, but you cannot make the parts that let you plug that extension into your app. That Those APIs are currently not available on iOS. What do you think the game plan is then? Do you think they're just 16.2, 16.3, they're going to host it or what? I don't know, but I'm, I'm assuming it's coming soon. I think it was supposed to. I think it's going to come soon. Okay. And that makes sense why they didn't have a WWDC talk, because that's a big deal, I would think. I think it's going to be an enormous deal, because it enables all kinds of apps that are totally impossible right now. Right. I think it's going to be a huge deal. Before we close out, what are some good candidates of apps that you would highly recommend people use Extension Kit for? And I'm not just talking on the Mac. I'm talking on all the OSs. I think a lot of apps could benefit from providing extensions. There are many apps I think it would make a lot of sense to offer your app functionality in terms of an extension. And now that it's so open-ended, so let's say you make a to-do app. You can totally make um, a to-do extension where you can maybe incorporate that into some other app can incorporate it. So I think that what the benefit to you making an app and offer an extension is the same reason why you want to offer extensions now. is because it's like a cool way for people to use your app more in more places. Yeah. Hosting the extension. All we have now is like URLs, right? Like that's pretty much it as far as cross-communication between apps. and Yeah, between apps, that's, that's, there's no other way. 
Yeah, I can't think of any other way you'd do it. So, like, to be able to to offer, and you know, there's some stuff with app groups, maybe, but like, that's mostly internal, I would think. But yeah, this is going to open up a big, big door for iOS and well, the other OSs. So, yeah, I'm excited. I've my list of things I need to finish up for Bushel, but extensions would definitely be a, a big. Maybe not first release thing, but at least second release thing, because there's going to be a lot people are going to want to do with VMs as developers. So, Matt, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close out? No, that was good stuff. That was really good stuff. Um, We have links to Chime and some of the stuff we talked about today. Matt, where can people find you online? Uh, You can find me on Twitter. I'm Maddie, M-A-T-T-I-E. Very easy. Yep. And we'll have links to your blog posts and uh, to especially the series on extension kit. Yeah. It turned into started small and turned into a huge thing. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. People can find me on Twitter at Leo GDM. My company is bright digit. Please take some time. If you are listening to this on a podcast player to give us a review. And if you're watching this on YouTube, like, and subscribe, please really appreciate it. And I hope everyone has a great week. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.